This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. How are you? Well, I'm excited. Let's, what, are, what are you, how does it work? Well, um, I've got some photos that I can show you along the way okay. of uh, uh, locations or people, uh, the, the map of the locations where we're going to be. So where is that from, the Austin History Center? This is like, you know, you can just go online and find maps of, from 1872 or 1886. Cool. And this is, I think, from 1896. Okay, right. So it's, uh, we're right here. Mm-hmm. This is where we are right now. And you can tell because there's the Millet Opera House right over there. Okay. And we're going to be heading up Brazos in this direction towards St. Mary's. And then head down 10th Street right there and uh, talk about uh, the old courthouse that used to be there and then walk over to the jail. Let's do it. So do I follow you? (laughs) Local historian Monica Ballard and I are on 9th Street in downtown Austin, Texas, talking about Eugene Burt. He was at the center of one of the city's most gruesome crimes. Here's a reminder of the story. In 1896, 29-year-old Eugene Burt was packing up and planning to leave the city where he had spent his whole life. He and his wife Annie had argued the night before. He wanted to escape his string of bad business decisions, as well as his angry brothers, by moving the family to Dallas. But Annie was close to her mother and her sister in Austin, and she didn't want to leave. When Eugene's housekeeper, Minnie Sims, asked where Annie and the girls were, Eugene said that they had gone to wait in San Antonio while he packed up their house. They would return to Austin and then all four of them would move to Dallas. Monica Ballard says that Eugene Burt was very calculating and he knew how to tell a convincing story. And this was planned. I mean, had had everybody known that they were going to Dallas? Yes, yeah. He couldn't find work. He thought he would have a better job in in Dallas. Yeah, so um, the packing commenced. And um, Minnie was offered and she accepted the mattress that Annie and Eugene slept on. And she, well, she couldn't wait to have a fine mattress like that, but she noticed that a little part of the ticking had been cut off. And she was going to go and ask about that. And she went downstairs and found Eugene in the downstairs dining room. And he was sitting there, elbows on knees, staring down at the floor, weeping. So she thought, best just let it go and not ask him about that. The packing of the crates continued and Eugene instructed Minnie to take the family photos out of their frames because Mr. Miller was going to buy the frames. And she asked, well, which crate do you want the the photos in? And he said, just throw them on the trash pile. Eugene was weepy and erratic, but his housekeeper wasn't suspicious yet. Minnie Sims watched her employer, the man she had known for several years. He had always seemed kind to his family. Perhaps the stress of his business failures was affecting him. Perhaps he was sentimental about leaving the city where he had grown up. Both options seemed feasible to the housekeeper. And Minnie was too busy with Eugene's errands to analyze him too much. (laughs) 
Early in the morning of Saturday, July 25, 1896, something had happened to Annie Burt and her young daughters, Lucille and Eleanor. They were gone, but where? Eugene Burt told Minnie that they had taken the 5 a.m. train to San Antonio and they would return by Wednesday. But Burt's descendant, Jeremy Childs, says that while Minnie worked preparing breakfast for Eugene and helping him, he seemed to fret. The only person that said he was acting strangely on the day of the murders was his housekeeper. And she mentioned that he was frantic and walking quickly. And then he made a request that seems odd to me looking through a 21st century lens, but it didn't seem out of order to many at the time. When he ordered breakfast, uh, he was very clear not to use the water in the cistern because he claims that there was an incident the night before and that the cat had gotten into the cistern and drowned. That was his explanation as to why to not use the cistern water for his breakfast. But in reality, he had done something far worse. Something terrible had happened to Annie and the girls. Her family could just sense it. By Sunday, July 27th, Annie's mother, Elizabeth Powers, and her sister, Agnes, were distressed. They hadn't heard from Annie for several days, which was out of character. After attending Sunday services at St. Mary's Cathedral down the road, Mrs. Powers rapped on the Burt's front door, and the Burt's cook, Minnie Sims, answered. Mrs. Powers asked where Annie and the girls were, so Minnie explained that Eugene had told her that there had been trouble on Friday night. He and Annie had argued, and they both decided that it was best for Annie to take their daughters on a short trip to San Antonio. They would be back soon, so there was no need to worry. On that Sunday, the following day that Bert had left town, Minnie saw Mrs. Powers, Annie's mother, and expressed her dismay that she hadn't gotten to say goodbye to Annie and the children because they were in San Antonio. So that would have been unusual. This struck Mrs. Powers as very odd because they didn't know anybody in San Antonio. And generally when there was trouble, as was being described, you know, if they had an argument or something like that, that Annie would bundle up the children and go to her house. That didn't happen. She was a little dismayed by this. Jeremy Childs and I talk about what happened next. Of course, this is very odd, very unlike Anna to not tell her mother where she might be going, especially if it's going to be long term. Uh, Mr. Bird, of course, Eugene has traveled to Dallas and everything seems very askew. Does Mrs. Powers immediately call the police or anybody? She doesn't raise too many red flags at that time, but she does start to ask some questions. Mrs. Powers and Annie's sister felt uneasy. The three of them were very close, and they felt that Annie just wouldn't leave. Finally, after a day of fretting, Mrs. Powers went to a nearby police station in downtown Austin. Mrs. Powers contacted Detective Cheneville and asked him to send somebody by to check out the house on Monday. So two policemen stop by, and of course, where there are uniformed policemen walking around, there are neighborhood boys seeing what was going on. So they asked the boys, they said, so, you know, what's been going on here? House been quiet? Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the birds, they left Saturday, I think. Yeah, they've gone, gone to Dallas. And they said, well, anything else strange about that? Well, there was a strange smell coming, coming from the cellar door, but the, the door's locked, so well, we don't know what's up. So everybody just sort of shrugged and left it at that. But none of that made Mrs. Powers feel any better. So she waited one more day. 
By now it's Tuesday. Mrs. Powers has not heard from her daughter. So she goes to see Roscoe and Monty at their shoe store. Even though Eugene was estranged from his brothers, Roscoe and Monty, they still cared for Annie and the girls. When Mrs. Powers arrived to their store looking panicked, they panicked too. So she pleads with them because Roscoe has a key to the house. So Roscoe meets up with a Mr. Johnson, a city health official, or an ex-city health official, and went to investigate at the house. And even before they entered the house, the stench was overpowering. There was a foreboding odor and the ominous hum of a myriad of flies underneath the floor in the basement. He also notices that beneath the floorboards in the kitchen is uh, an abundance of flies that have started to come in and out of the, the, the cellar area. And he goes down there. And they, they found the bodies, the mutilated bodies of Annie and a toddler and an infant. Detectives pulled the bodies of Annie and Lucille and Eleanor from the cistern. They put a sheet over the three of them and tried to process the scene. 19th century forensic techniques were crude compared to modern technology, as you might expect. A pathologist could analyze stomach contents, but we know now that this technique doesn't always accurately predict time of death. Testing the temperature of the victim's liver had not yet been utilized as a tool. There were forensic tools available in the late 1800s, like toxicology, chemistry, and even fingerprinting, but none of those things came into play in this case. And you probably know that water isn't often a friend to investigators. Water can wash away evidence and speed up the decomposition process, making autopsies difficult. Monica Ballard says that the bodies of Annie and the girls had decomposed quickly over the four days they were submerged in the cistern. I asked Monica about the condition of the bodies. The head was left out of the burlap sack and uh, Mrs. Burt's feet as well. And so her main body was encased in this, in this sack uh, and, and bound around with ropes. Why do you think that he did that? Maybe it was an easier way of lowering her in or getting her downstairs to that point maybe dragging her down, and the girls were separate somewhere? The baby was wearing just a diaper, and the other girl was in a white nightgown. And uh, yeah, the bodies were bloated. You could tell, though, that that she had been struck on the side of her head. And the, the face was really so disfigured that one of the witnesses said that he recognized her by her eyes, the color of her eyes. Now it was the city physician's job to determine how they died, which clearly wasn't from natural causes. Remember, this used to be Eugene's father's job, Dr. William Burt. If he were still alive, it would have been his job to report to the murder scene. Investigators loaded the bodies onto a horse-drawn cart waiting out front of the Burt's home. A crowd had gathered on 9th Street. 
Neighbors whispered about what could have possibly happened because they seemed like such a lovely family. Dr. Graves examined the bodies at a local furniture store called Miller's. In the 1800s, autopsies often took place at furniture stores out of convenience. The owners of the store could then make a casket for the deceased. Dr. Graves scribbled notes as he examined Annie and her two daughters. He first noted what they were wearing. Annie had been wrapped in a blanket with a rope secured around her. Then she was placed inside a large burlap sack. The little girls had their hands crossed on their chests. Their arms were tied together with wire. Their feet were crossed at the ankles and they were also tied with wire. The wire was then wrapped around their entire bodies, presumably to keep their clothes in place. Their deaths, their final moments were violent. And it's difficult to read the details, especially because they include the murders of Eleanor and Lucille. Yeah, the examination was just done there. And Dr. Graves, he said that the head of Mrs. Burt had been crushed with a blunt instrument of some kind. And the children had an instrument of some kind thrust into their temples with such force as to crush the bones. It sounds like Dr. Graves was describing a crude lobotomy on a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. How could a father or any parent do that? And then Dr. Graves inspected something around each of their necks. All three had handkerchiefs tied tightly around their necks, and indications in the opinion of Dr. Graves points to strangulation first, and then the use of other means to make sure the work of death. Dr. Graves suspected that Eugene first strangled them and then butchered their bodies with an axe. Annie had a gash in her face that extended from her right temple down her cheekbone. The girls both had the same injuries. Those images horrified detectives and Dr. Graves. So Dr. Graves quickly settled on strangulation as a cause of death for all three, followed by some post-mortem mutilation. But then, after he spoke with detectives, Dr. Graves revised his opinion, and it was so much worse. Here's why. The detectives spent hours searching the birds' home. They looked at the mattress in the master bedroom. They looked through Lucille and Eleanor's room. They examined the basement where the cistern was. And they were surprised because they found no blood, not a bit according to the police. But these should have been three very bloody murders because they were caused by blunt force trauma to the heads. The detectives told Dr. Graves that Eugene Burt had been very interested in his father's work as the city physician. So Eugene would have known that an object like an ax would have caused a massive amount of blood loss. And so when Dr. Graves heard all of this, he revised his opinion about what had taken place. Eugene had not strangled his wife and daughter with the handkerchiefs. He had hit them each with an ax and then quickly tied the cloths around the necks to stop the blood that was dripping down. It was found later that it was not meant to strangulate at all. It was meant to staunch the flow of blood as he beat their brains in. So this seems like someone who was pretty astute for somebody who can't get it together enough to get a job. This seems kind of well-planned. Yeah. Was this planned or does this seem like an act of passion? 
plan to a certain extent of his escape, of hiding the bodies, of cleaning up after the bodies, all of that seems extremely meticulous and not something that arose out of an argument that Friday night. That's a big question that I have. Was this an act of passion or was it something that was planned? It seems premeditated to me, and Jeremy Childs agrees because of the handkerchiefs. Eugene had to act quickly to stop the blood, so he must have been carrying them in his pocket along with the axe. This goes to the brutality, but also the the premeditation is they're found with linen or handkerchiefs tied very tightly around their necks so that they wouldn't bleed as much so that the cleanup wouldn't be as bad. It is absolutely uh, maniacal uh, to think that a father could do something like that to his wife and his, his, his young children. There were no doubts that Eugene Burt had murdered his entire family. Who else could it be? Who else had access to his house? Who else would Annie have let inside in the middle of the night? But the evidence so far was circumstantial if it went to court. There were no witnesses, no fingerprints, and most importantly, no murder weapon. The police searched the house and the property. They couldn't find an axe, and Eugene Burt was in the wind. But it seemed very clear to investigators what the motive was, They surmised that Eugene Burt was a troubled man before he married Annie and they had the girls. He had tortured a bunny when he was just a boy. He had thieved and lied and embezzled all from his own brothers. The deaths of his parents had sent him into despair for years. He was an excellent actor, a man who masqueraded as a doting husband and father when he was truly a monster just waiting to release his depravity on his wife and children. But the truth might have been much simpler. Eugene Burt might have suffered from a mental illness. He might have suffered from stressors after the death of his parents. He might have suffered from fear of financial ruin or of prison. That was all likely true. But throughout history, people have suffered and they haven't killed their wife and children. Eugene Burt was guilty of murder, but would he go to prison for it, or the gallows, or would he go free? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Eugene Burt fell into a category of killers that are now known as family annihilators. These murderers are typically men. They kill their families, but not themselves. And their motives are often twisted, sometimes related to finances or religion, or simply a desire to start over. Family annihilators are uncommon, so when they do come up in the news, they make big headlines. Julie Norton comes from Eugene's maternal side of the family. 
I asked her why she thought people would take the lives of their children or their spouses or other family members, but not take their own lives. You know, mothers drive into a light with their children in the car. It's hard to know. When somebody has it in their head, they can't deal with a problem, two children, a wife that won't leave you alone. If you've got that in your mind, then that's a problem. You know, who knows what you would do? Over the years, there have been some very high-profile cases involving family annihilators. Here are two of them. In 1971, accountant John List murdered his wife, their three children, and his mother in New Jersey before vanishing for nearly 18 years. He was having financial problems, and he feared that they would lose their 18-room mansion, but his family didn't know this. List also feared that his family was straying from Christianity. He later claimed that he murdered them so they could all be reunited in heaven, but List had no intention to take his own life. After covering up the murders, List moved to Colorado and remarried, then started working for H&R Block. In 1989, a former neighbor spotted him on America's Most Wanted after List moved to Virginia. After his conviction, List was sentenced to five consecutive life terms. He died at age 83 in prison, still hoping to see his family in heaven. More recently, a high-profile case showed just how unsuspecting some suspected killers can be. Friends and family thought that Chris Watts was a committed husband and father, but secretly he was having an affair and his desire to start a new life apparently took over. In August of 2018, he strangled his wife, Shanann, and then smothered his daughters, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Cece. Then, he secluded them in oil tanks where he worked, which sounds similar to what Eugene Burt did in his cistern. At first, Chris Watts denied the murders. He even blamed Shanann for killing the girls herself before he killed Shanann in anger. But finally, Watts admitted to investigators with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation that he was responsible for all three deaths. When CBI investigators asked about the trigger, he thought it was because Shanann never got along with his family and he had a mistress. Why were you so mad at Shanann? Was part of it just this whole family strife? That's the only thing I can think of right now because, I mean, there's no other reason really to be mad at her. Just she, we took care of each other our whole whole eight years. It was just like a good relationship. I mean, it's just like... If I never met Nikki, would I ever have, you know, thought our relationship was bad? I would not. But Watts didn't just kill his wife. He murdered his little girls. He strangled Shanann first at the house, but then he drove Cece and Bella to the oil site where he would murder them and put them inside tanks. When CBI agents asked why Watts killed his girls, Chris Watts didn't have a clear answer. Was it your intent the whole time you were taking the girls out there that they were, you were going to do that to them, honestly? Like you talking about the tanks? Or just, yeah, like, well, just... I mean, I, I just... I, thought process and all this, none of this makes sense. That's why I know you guys keep asking these questions because it doesn't make sense to me. You could have done it before you guys left. I don't. And not had them, you know, alive in the backseat. They could have been with Shanann in the backseat. Or it's like how everything was going to happen. I don't know, like, why it happened. 
man, the whole trip out there, I mean, it was like I was on, like I wasn't thinking. It was like, it's like I, in my mind right now, I'm thinking back. I'm like, I'm hoping that I wasn't, like, that I wasn't coherent enough to make that decision to where I knew I was going to kill my girls. I was, I'm just hoping that, you know, like, like no, no father would want, ever want to do anything to hurt his, his blood flesh, but I did that, and I just don't understand how it happened. Watts is now serving a life sentence. It's not clear whether the murders were premeditated, but regardless, Watts certainly covered them up, and so did John List. And in 1896, there's evidence that Eugene Burt had committed premeditated murder. If it wasn't premeditated, then he he was really quick on his feet, especially the part about wrapping the kerchiefs around their necks to keep the blood. That may have been something that, that goes back to his his father. Maybe he witnessed some surgeries as a child and knew the process of making a tourniquet properly. More on that theory in a little bit. Personally, I don't think Eugene was particularly quick on his feet or a brilliant criminal mastermind. He was bright and he was a grifter, but I'm not sure that he would be adept at improvising under pressure. He oftentimes let his emotions take over his common sense, like when he loudly criticized Catholicism to a family friend. Eugene Burt wasn't cool or calm, but he did know how to plan very well when it was required. They also find out that he had mailed himself a package, a large box to Houston, Texas. While the investigation in Austin continued, Houston police contacted detectives because a large crate had shown up at the train station that couldn't be delivered. When no one came to claim it, the police in Houston searched maps for the address, and it appeared to be a fake location. The numbers weren't right. Even the name of the street wasn't right. And then they looked at the name on the label. After checking the latest census, that name wasn't real either. What was going on? Austin law enforcement had alerted the larger cities in Texas that there was a suspected murderer in the area. When Houston police realized that the name and address were fake, they called Austin. And when Austin investigators received the crate, they used a crowbar and pried open the box. In that box, basically everything that he had used to commit the murders, including a hatchet, as well as the bloody sheets and clothing that he was wearing and that they were in the area using to clean up the mess in the bedrooms where the murders took place. That's where all the blood went, on the sheets, on his clothes, and on their clothes. And in that box was the murder weapon, the hatchet. That was the same hatchet that Eugene used to chop wood in his yard. I hate the term smoking gun, but this was the smoking gun. Experts could not determine if the blood on the items in the crate came from a human or an animal. That wasn't possible in the late 1800s. That breakthrough would not happen until 1901 when a German scientist helped solve a crime. A carpenter had been charged with murdering two young boys. He was convicted when the scientist managed to build a test differentiating human blood from that of sheep based on certain chemicals. And amazingly, there's now a portable rapid test that tells investigators at the scene if the blood is human or animal. 
Researchers use an infrared device to analyze samples directly with no preparation needed, and the method doesn't destroy the blood sample. The chemical fingerprints of proteins, nucleic acids, and carbohydrates are different between humans and animals. Amazing. In 1892, the blood on the items inside the crate was substantial, enough to cause suspicion that Eugene Burt had killed his wife, Annie, and their two little girls. How could this happen in a family that seemed loving, even if Eugene Burt did feel immense pressure, even if he did have erratic behavior and numerous stressors? Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Christine Montrose says that we all have the ability to kill, whether it's done to protect ourselves or our families, or out of desperation or out of malice. And Dr. Montrose believes that all of us could be pushed to murder depending on the circumstances. I mean, this is the scariest thing. Like, I think if my kids were threatened in some dire way, I like to think I would not be capable of killing another person, but I I think I could. I agree. I would, too, in an instant. All human beings, I think, have the capacity under the right circumstances to act in ways that might really appall us. Do I think that all human beings have the capacity to carry out sadistic, um, you know, murders of the kind that you you dwell in? (laughs) No. But do I think that all of us, when stretched to certain circumstances, have the capacity to do things that we would really feel horrified and deny that we have the capacity to do? Absolutely. I agree with her. But the big question for me with this story is motive. Why the children? Because they were witnesses? And why kill his wife? The CDC reports that homicide is the fifth leading cause of death for women between 20 and 44. The majority of those women are killed by former or current spouses or partners. Sadly, Julie Norton is not at all surprised that Eugene murdered his wife. As soon as you said that, Anna Powers said something to her mother. There's some motive there that we're just not seeing. I don't know what it is, didn't cook dinner right. It's difficult to know. Anything can just set you off in the most bizarre way. Domestic court judge Dimple Maholtra agrees with Julia. There really is no trigger, you know, and if you if you talk to survivors, they will tell you, I never knew what I could or could not do to prevent the violence. You know, I did all the things. I, I cleaned the kitchen. I cooked. I took care of the kids. I worked. I did all the things that I thought I needed to do to keep this person happy, and still there was violence. And it didn't matter to the other person. There was nothing to stop it. And I think that that is indicative of the fact that domestic violence is about power and control and not necessarily something that the victim did or didn't do. There's not really a trigger. What's so difficult to accept for most of us is that a father could murder his wife and children for an innocuous reason that virtually anything can set someone off. Descendant Jeremy Childs says he can't understand it either. I can relate to having bad finances, getting a fight with a wife, that kind of thing, but that's where it ends. Well, she's not little anymore, but I have a daughter and a son, and, and so that's where I stop being able to relate to him. And so that's when I think mental illness must be a part of his story to an extent for him to take it to this realm. 
So are we back to looking at the history of mental health struggles in his family if there is evidence pointing to mental illness? I would have to start with his father, the the doctor, William Burt, because I really do think that Eugene Burt's psychosis stems from his childhood and either some of the things that he saw or possibly even participated in, and I think it damaged him. Jeremy is talking about Eugene's experience at the home of the second-to-last victim of the Servant Girl Annihilator when Eugene was a teenager. During one of the investigations of uh, one of the victims, Eugene went with him to the murder scene and was actually holding the murder weapon, this bloody axe. And that had to have an impact on someone that young and impressionable. And that probably wasn't the first time that he was at a crime scene with his father witnessing something brutal like that. So now we're back to thinking that Eugene Burt might have been affected by hearing about and then seeing those brutal murders when he was just 15. Jeremy's mother, Patricia, agrees with him. There might have been an opportunity that Eugene would have actually even been present near one of those bodies, something that might have caused some urge to surface. And now we're back to talking about premeditation. Did he plan this, or was this an act of passion? Or were the murders the result of mental health issues that went undiagnosed? Shooting someone in in the spur of the moment, I can see why that might be just someone being a jerk, you know, or being so desperate that they think they need to do this in order to survive or whatever. But for a personal, you know, knife or a hatchet or strangulation or, or beating someone to death, That, I think, requires a level of mental illness at at the bare minimum, you know, to be able to do that to another human despite their pleas for uh, salvation, despite their, their, their crying out for, you know, that, I think, absolutely requires a modicum of mental illness. Here's what's interesting. The psychiatrists that I spoke with said that Eugene Burt might have had schizophrenia. He had incredible bouts of paranoia around Catholicism, And while it's true that many people in the 1800s despised Catholics, Eugene's anger seemed excessive. Julie Norton is a descendant from Eugene's mother's line, and she admits that there is mental illness in her family, maybe more than in the average family. But Julie says that a mental illness wasn't to blame for these murders. He might have been mentally ill, but I I doubt that, that his acting mentally ill was actually what happened. That does sound like he thought this out, he thought this through, he thought about how to cover it up. He had some knowledge of how to do that. Where do you think he would have learned that? Being around his father, that would be my guess. I can't imagine. Why? I I have a sister with schizophrenia. She's not dangerous or anything. She gets just irrational more than anything. She will get angry at me when I try to help her. Things that don't make any sense, but they aren't harmful. And she would never cover it up and she wouldn't remember that she'd done it. And I've heard from other experts that the violence due to an ongoing mental illness is not usually focused on one particular person. It can be anyone. So then it would be unusual to plan a murder beforehand and then cover it up. Something about this case reminds me a bit about the story of Howard Pearson from season three of Tenfold More Wicked. In that season, 20-year-old Howard Pearson murdered his father and mother in a rural area of Austin, Texas in the 1930s. 
His father was an associate Supreme Court judge, so it was covered extensively by the media. Howard also showed signs of mental illness, so he was sent to a mental health facility rather than a prison. But Howard had also extensively planned the murder of his parents. He gunned them down, ran over his mother with the family's car, and then Howard covered up their murders by shooting himself in the arm and claiming that robbers had killed them. Can you murder someone because of mental illness, but also plan it before and after? Most experts say no, but Patricia Childs has a theory about why we do the things we do. Patricia is in Eugene's mother's family tree. So we're looking at Cleo's mental health history for answers to Eugene Burt's terrible decision. But perhaps we should be instead looking at his father, Dr. William Burt. I have a sense that we have uh, not only physical DNA, but that we have spiritual DNA, emotional DNA. That is to say, I think that there are things that carry generation to generation. I know that there's no, maybe no real way to prove that when everyone wants a physical explanation and physical proof. But that's just a sense that I have in having worked on so many various family trees for people, starting them and working and then sitting down with them. And you begin to see certain traits that move generation to generation. And then you'll be going back in time In the story about Howard Pearson, we found out that his father had been abusive to the whole family, and that might have been a motive for why he killed him. Patricia thinks that William Burt might hold some answers because she thinks that violence doesn't come out of nowhere. Young boys don't impale rabbits for no reason. We will definitely come back to this. But the question then on everyone's mind was, where is Eugene Burt? The last we heard of him, he was on a train bound for Dallas. Police had no photos of him. People in the 1800s weren't required to carry any kind of nationalized identification card. So investigators printed up more than 100 flyers with his full physical description and distributed them in post offices across Texas. Would police ever find him? Or would Eugene Burt simply vanish, along with the motive for the murders of the three people who had accepted and loved him the most? On the next episode of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right... Bert had been seen the day before the killings in the backyard dragging a burlap sack. And he bought the hatchet at a hardware store a couple of days before. So this is clearly premeditated. Yeah. It it is a horrific story. I don't think it's understandable. It's clearly not logical. No logical person would do that. Today, if somebody had an ex sitting around, you'd think, wow, a little bit, hmm, you know. I imagine that his motivation there was just to get rid of any and all evidence and really just go on with his life, thinking that he wouldn't face any consequences if he were to murder everyone. 
If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.